during that time period, it was yeah, a very dark, dark, dark place. I, when I was discharged from the hospital, I had to move back in with my parents because I really couldn't take care of myself. And I mean, at the hospital, I was like, you know, having to like relearn, like relearn how to balance. And I was doing like all these memory games and it was rock bottom. And it's, it was very, very depressing. I suffered from like some severe, very severe depression through all of it. Because when you see, like, when you go from like the life of a pro cyclist to like relearning how to walk, it's not very, you're not very happy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So yeah, but like my parents have, yeah, they, they they took me back in (laughs) and I was able to like recover there. I like went to graduate school. I was like trying to reinvent my whole life. And I was like, cycling is not an option anymore. So better go get that master's degree. to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast, the exploration of life fully optimized with Megan Hotman. Hey, Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast listeners, welcome back. Today's episode is brought to you by Champion System Custom Cycling, Running, and Triathlon Apparel. Their website is champ-sys.com, C-H-A-M-P-S-Y-S.com. Why do I love Champion System and why is it the cycling and triathlon gear that I use? Well, for starters, the chamois in the shorts are amazing. I wore my Champion System bibs for the Dirty Kanza back in June. That's right, 206 miles and about 16 hours in the saddle and I didn't have a single issue. In addition, their gear is really, really awesome. It's lightweight, zippers are great, seams are great. As I mentioned, the chamois is great. I love their cycling gear, but also their triathlon and their running gear. And I've worked with them for several different custom kits that I've designed. Their art department is really, really easy to work with. And their production time frame is actually among the shortest in the industry. It's about four to six weeks from design submission until your goodies are on your doorstep. Not only that, but the folks behind Champion System are some of the people that have been with me since the beginning of my cycling career, and they are based in my home state of Nebraska. So you are in good hands if you do your business with Champion System. I can't recommend them enough. Visit their website at champ-sys.com and tell them that Megan at Maximum Enthusiasm sent you. guys welcome back to the maximum enthusiasm podcast we are closing in on the end of august 2021 already which is crazy to me because it feels like we were just coming out of 2020 and suddenly we are now closing in on the start of 2022 i feel like many of the goals i set for myself this year have not even begun yet to take shape and at the same time other new goals and objectives have popped up in the meantime and just have been on this trajectory of growth and just optimism for what's ahead. So uh, what a wild ride this life is that we are all on. And um, 
one of the things that has really kickstarted me athletically is I went on a bikepacking trip back in July called the Ramble Ride. I highly recommend you check it out at ramblerides.com. It is a semi-supported bikepacking trip, multi-day, where you camp in tents at night. Um, we started and finished in Walden, Colorado, and the ride routes are very difficult. These are not easy days on the bike. The good news is that they carry your gear for you, so you don't have to schlep your tent and your sleeping bag and everything on the bike, which is really nice. And then they cook your food, and there's seltzer waters and campfire hangouts at night and coffee in the morning and it's just really delightful this was my second one with ramble rides I, I went on their very first one back in 2016 just had an awesome time and it really just being on the bike those four days and doing four really hard rides kind of reinvigorated my desire to get back on a bit more of a consistent riding plan and be a little bit more intense intentional with my rides and my training so then that really carried nicely into the Foco Fondo, which was a wonderful gravel ride that we did in late July up in Fort Collins. Um, had another event or two in there in the middle. I can't even remember what they were now. And then last weekend was at Gravel Worlds back in Lincoln, Nebraska, which really brought this podcast kind of full circle in many ways because the podcast back in 2018 launched with those interviews of the founders at Gravel Worlds back three years ago. So it's crazy to know that that has been three years already and to still see the folks who started Gravel Worlds just crushing the event. They had about a thousand participants this year. It has grown in so many ways. It's just become such a professional top-notch event. And I also really appreciate their commitment to keeping it grassroots and not having it go too big, um, really just keeping it core to its initial values and roots of being like true grassroots gravel racing. And um, I took a different approach this year at Gravel Worlds. Instead of racing it as I've done the last three times, this was my fourth time there, I instead took my GoPro camera along and just really made a point to engage with the race itself, the race course, the volunteers, other racers. Um, that's not to say that I was just puttering around out there on the course, but um, I also didn't have my head down, just focused only on racing. And a really interesting dynamic happened this year, which is that on the Monday and Tuesday following the race, and I've never had this happen before, I was contacted by probably six or eight different people by um, either Instagram direct message, messenger or in an email um, by uh, Facebook Messenger, just some of the folks that I had ridden with during the race reaching out. Um, a couple of them contacted me on Strava. And I found that super powerful because I was still riding at a good pace, but I wasn't like head down, completely focused on winning or finishing or podium podiuming. And instead was engaging in conversations with some of these people that I was working with at various times during the race. And so to have them reach out and contact me in the days following the race was really powerful to me because there's times when I feel like I know everyone in cycling. And then suddenly I have an experience like this where there's this entirely new group of people that I meet and engage with. And then they reach out and now we're following each other or we're friends on Facebook or we're connected on Strava. And now it's just like my cycling family has grown even bigger and broader. And it's just so cool. And 
to be at Gravel Worlds and get to see so many people that were from my original back back in the when days of starting cycling, way back when I was in Nebraska as a new cyclist, all the way to present and having the opportunity to sit on a women's panel and getting to know some of the other women at the top of the sport. Um, just a truly positive and amazing experience all around. And um, just want to give a plug to maybe considering for a race that you're signed up to do at some point, especially if it's gravel, turning it more into a connection exercise rather than a race for a finish or a place, a placing um, finish. So pretty cool. And also had the chance to continue to work on my video skills and my video editing skills as I put together a compilation video of the day. So it was just an amazing, positive experience. I listened to seven hours of podcasts on the way to Lincoln, Nebraska, and another seven on my way home. And I just want to give a shout out to a few other podcasts that I found really powerful and really poignant at a time when I needed to hear what I heard, uh, which include one of my former coaches and former podcast guests, Shelly Paxton, her Soulbatical podcast. She then had a couple guests on, and one of them I pursued their new podcast. Her name is Abby Gibb, a former um, TV journalist. Then I was into Rich Roll's podcast, listened to the one he did with Courtney DeWalter, who's this incredible long-distance ultra runner um, out of um, Colorado, I think. She's just amazing. Um, somehow stumbled into Oprah's podcast and listened to a couple where she was talking about just relationship stuff and emotional style, which I found really powerful. And then I plugged into Glennon Doyle's uh, We Can Do Hard Things, listened to a couple of those episodes, which was really good. I've been wanting to check that one out for a while. And um, can't even remember really some of the other ones I listened to, but it was super good. It was like a master class in emotional intelligence and relationships and growth and quitting and, um, yeah, just honoring thyself. One theme that consistently came up in those podcasts, and maybe this is why I picked out those episodes, uh, is that the universe will start nudging us and throwing small pebbles at us, and then it will start to throw rocks at us if we're still not listening, and then it will start to throw boulders at us. And those descriptions, one of them said the universe will hit us upside the head with a two by four. These were discussions in the context of what happens when our inner knowing and then our physical body starts telling us that something's not right, that the environment or circumstance that we're in is not only no longer serving us, which it may have been at one time, but is actually starting to become very destructive and um, and and could be catastrophically bad for us in the sense specifically of some of these women talking about their bodies breaking down from the fatigue, from the stress, the chronic stress, developing autoimmune disorders, which even after they have sort of recovered their health, they now still have to manage these autoimmune disorders. Um, one theme that struck me was how many of them mentioned having um, eczema or like psoriasis on their skin, around their mouth on their face, like facial breakouts, just indications of the inside body not doing very well. Um, I recently read a definition of courage. It might have been a Brene Brown book where she said the definition of courage is when your outsides match your insides. And what she means by that is just really living a life that jives with what your 
sort of intuition and your gut and your heart and your soul want and need. And one of the big takeaways from all of this for me was that things can absolutely serve you during a certain season of your life. They were not inherently bad to begin with. In fact, they could be amazing and awesome. And this could be a relationship. This could be a job. And then suddenly something shifts, and usually it's through a transition or a season of growth, um, or we, we start to shed layers um, and change and grow. And now those things don't serve us anymore. And then there's like a transition period where it could perhaps be neutral, and then suddenly it becomes destructive and catastrophically bad. And I... I can relate to that, and I have been feeling that nudge and that knowingness in me for some time about a specific aspect of my life that I am still struggling with and still wrestling with, and I can only just feel it growing and building, maybe past the point of pebbles starting to become rocks. And something I said today to my hairdresser, I actually said, I can sort of feel the physical breakdown or manifestation of this coming. And I know that because of the way that my sleep has been for the last year or so, that um, what I don't want to do is wait for the huge health crisis or the huge breakdown to make a big decision. I don't want to be the lawyer who has the heart attack or who has the total health crisis before she makes a decision. Um, it's just so hard because uh, you can know things objectively and then you can know things the way that they feel inside of you. And it is that tension that I find really interesting. And I also find it incredibly uncomfortable. Um, the last time I was in this sort of a growth phase or state was about six years ago. And um, my personal life was falling apart. And um, I can feel it now building again in a sort of different way, telling me it's time that I need to evaluate some things. So it's, it's really awful and awkward and uncomfortable. And at the same time, I know that it's calling me to my greatest good. And I would just say, if that lands with anyone that's listening, if you're going through a growth transition, even if you're sort of fighting it, kicking and screaming, just trust that you are being called and pulled towards your greatest good and that it, it may be uncomfortable as you pass through it. But none of us ever fully arrive. And most of us go through multiple growth phases in life. So the less that we resist it and the more that we sort of embrace it and look for what it is trying to teach us, I think that's that's a good thing. So just a shout out to reread Brene Brown's The Gifts of Imperfection. I am presently rereading it, and it is serving me in an entirely new way than it did when I read it years ago. Um, so check that out and definitely check out her podcast as well. So long-winded intro, but just had some things I wanted to share, and as I uh, round back to my experience at Gravel Worlds last weekend. I'll just say that that's what prompted the interview with today's guest, uh, Lauren De Crescenzo, LDC, uh, Lauren Misima on Instagram. Uh, she is a former road cyclist who suffered a significant uh, setback, which you'll hear about on the podcast. And she is now taking the gravel racing scene by storm with huge wins this year at some of the biggest gravel events here in the U.S., and unfortunately, these victories have come under a cloud of criticism and internet um, vitriol. And if you um, if you haven't been following this story, it's it's heartbreaking just in so many ways, especially to see the the um, the chaos within women's gravel cycling and sort of the the rift 
that is that has been opened or that is resulting from these um, these conflicts. And so it's really it's really heartbreaking as someone who loves the sport and as a woman racer, when we're all trying to get more uh, visibility and credibility for women's racing, it's just really, really hard to watch women kind of um, going after one another, uh, specifically on the internet. So I don't have the answers. I certainly don't pretend to have them and I'm not at the top of the sport anymore. So I don't even feel like I should be voting or, or chiming in on this. I don't have a dog in the fight per se as a woman bike racer other than I know that I would really like to see us get back to a place where women are supporting um, women in the sport. And I, I, I'm hopeful that we'll get there and that this is a big growing pain in the sport of women's gravel racing. I'm super inspired by Lauren's story and what she's overcome to get where she is. I think there's a lot to be learned from all of this and she's handling it with um, more grace than I would be. I think I would be prone to be attacking and defending on the internet if people were doing to me what they're doing to her. But I know there's no right answer. And I also know that taking the high road is always the best option, as hard as it can be. So I really hope you enjoy this interview. If you want to learn more, you can Google Lauren's name and learn more about these races. And you can read some of the stories about what Velo News and Cycling News and some of the other cycling publications have written about them. And I expect that Lauren will be soon publishing uh, a write-up of her own to share her story and share her perspective. And um, yeah, I just, I, I think there's a lot of good in all of this and I'm hopeful for where it's headed. So I hope this podcast finds you in a good place in life in a good season on a good day in a good mood. And um, here's a little, a little dab of maximum enthusiasm to get you through your next workout or your next challenge or your next obstacle or life conflict. And I hope it leaves you better than when you started. Have a good one. And thanks again for listening. So excited to welcome you today, Lauren. Thank you so much for being here today on the Maximum Enthusiasm podcast. How are you today? Uh, I'm hanging in there, hanging in there. <laughs> so for our guests tuning in, this is Lauren DiCrescenzo, uh, LDS, as some say, and... Uh, LDC, 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 LDC. Not Latter-day Saints. <laughs> <laughs> LDC, Lauren DiCrescenzo, Lauren yes. DiCrescenzo on Instagram now, Lauren Nisima, correct? Yes, that is the Italian way of saying the most Laurenist. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those tuning in, you may recognize Lauren's name as being a very, very dominant bike racer, especially on the gravel scene this 2021 season. And before we even go near the topic of bike racing, Lauren, I would love to just ask you, what is it that you wish people knew about you? What do you want them to know about you? And what do you think that people don't know about you? Uh, I feel like a lot of people, well, a lot of people know about my return to bike racing and everything, but I mean, I do have like my little elevator, well, not an elevator pitch, but like I can briefly just like, I don't know, tell people who might be interested about, I don't know, like my comeback to professional cycling after a really severe, like nearly fatal traumatic brain injury. I would love to have you talk about that and really take us back to what happened, what caused the brain injury and, and what transpired from there. Right. Yeah. So back in 2016, I was like 
an up and coming like professional road cyclist. I thought I finally made it. <laughs> and I was like at one of my first pro road races, but in the finishing shoot, like I went over the handlebars over the barriers and suffered a, like a brain bleed. Uh, so a traumatic brain injury and that kind of changed everything. So like I was in a coma for a few days, six days. I like slowly recovered at the ICU and at a rehab center for couple weeks and that's when I thought like I'm done with this like I'm never touching a bike again this is like way too dangerous and it's completely ruined my life so oh, wow. <laughs> yeah it was like a very very dark time um to be a uh, after a crash like that but then following that crash like over the next two years I went on to get my master's degree in public health and epidemiology and I, I was kind of like able to refocus my whole life on like epidemiology, public health. I was able to find, I was able to land a job at CDC. Um, not everyone knows what CDC stands for. <laughs> tell us, tell us, no such thing is too basic. Yeah. Oh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. <laughs> Which is probably a really active place to be during COVID, but we can come back to that if you want. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, that was a very uh, a good first job. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> yeah, so I mean, through all that, I like thought I had totally like found a new direction to go with my life, but like I never let go of like this cycling dream that I've always had for my entire adult life. I started this sport when I was like 18 years old and I'm coming up on my 31st birthday. So yeah. Uh, so I've been at this for a very long time, but um, yeah, I guess several months after like starting uh, my degree, um, some of my friends at school convinced me to join the collegiate cycling team because they noticed that I was like, like, you're looking fit, Lauren. You should really uh -huh. do some races with us. Yeah. <laughs> do some races with us. So like I did, I did a couple of races and like, I was able to like win the, the national time trial in 2019 because it was Eddie Merck style and I didn't have a TT bike. So oh, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was a good comeback. And then in May of 2020, like during the pandemic, while I was like on the COVID task force, I thought of something even crazier to do, which was the Everesting. Yes. Uh, yeah. I thought I would go for the Everesting world record because why not? <laughs> and, at the time I wasn't, I wasn't on a team. I did not have a coach. I wasn't sure how that day was going to play out. And I was very like ill-prepared for the day ahead of me and ended up like, I was like in tears for the last two hours. Cause it was like hurt so bad. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> but I, uh, in the pro, like I was able to push through that and then my time was like nine hours, 57 minutes, 29 seconds. And I set like the new women's world record, which was a world record for about five days before someone else took it. But it was oh, a really wow. good five days. Yeah, it was a good five days. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, that was great. <laughs> Do what? That's amazing though. That feat, like whether the record held for five days or five years, that's an amazing feat to Everest in under 10 hours. That's incredible. That was insane. That day was crazy. And it was very, I was very spur of the moment, like, oh, I'll just do that this weekend. So, wow. <laughs> just, yeah. So I guess after that, I guess 
um, last fall, I was on Tom and Corny Danielson's podcast as a guest and they wanted to talk about like the crash at the tour of Poland's because it was so similar. It was basically what happened to me okay. um, at my crash. And at the time I was balancing like the full-time job and my very extreme hobby of gravel racing. And I mean, the team, I mean, I'm a roadie at heart. So like, I really, like, I was inclined to join a team, like just for the bicycle prep, the travel logistics and the coaching. Right. Um, yeah. So I could do like the high level cycling while also having a full-time, very, very intense job. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was hard to do both. And then I had the opportunity to like join some other people who want to do the same thing as me. So it seems like everyone was going to win. <laughs> and we'll come back and we'll finish that, um, that timeline with what has happened in 2021 with your amazing gravel results. But I want to back you up because something you yeah, said, no, I'm just like going on a rant right now. So. Okay, no, this is totally <laughs> and I try really hard not to interrupt people because I like for them to tell their story. And I think that was a really great historical look back at this brain injury that you suffered. And um, you and I were just on a panel together in gravel worlds just last weekend. And you said something that just really struck me. Well, first you were like, so you said something like, I don't want to sound like a broken record. Or I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I'm mentioning my TBI again um, in the context of an answer you gave. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that's the opposite of beating a dead horse. You, I felt like I wanted to say to you, you should never, ever have to apologize for explaining the TBI <laughs> as being part of an answer. Like it's such a significant life event for anyone, let alone someone who comes back and is so dominant in the sport. Um, but then you added on and you said, yeah, during the time frame when I was learning how to rewalk and you were explaining yeah. kind of your mantra and some of the things that get you through racing now, and you were reflecting back on that time period. And I, in that moment, that really, really hit home for me because I think we can talk about TBI and we can talk about how bad it was and none of us were living in your shoes. None of us were living with you day to day. We can kind of glance over some of the reality of that and sort of talk about this comeback and how amazing it is. But, I mean, Lauren, you were literally learning how to rewalk. I mean, yeah. what, what was that like? Like to me, that humanizes you more than almost anything else I've ever learned about you or that you've shared. I mean, that's like rock bottom, rock bottom. Oh, I was at, oh yeah, I was at rock bottom. That is rock bottom. Talk to us about that. I mean, are your parents heavily involved in taking care of you? Are you, yeah. I mean, where are you at? You're, you're in, you're in between racing and having starting your master's degree. Like what is life look like for you in that? During uh, during that time period, it was yeah a very dark 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 place. I when I was discharged from the hospital, I had to move back in with my parents because I really couldn't take care of myself. And I mean, at the hospital, I was like, you know, having to like relearn like relearn how to balance, and I was doing like all these memory games, and it was rock bottom. And it, it's it was very very depressing. I suffered from like some severe, very severe depression through all of it. Because when you see, like when you go from like the life of a pro cyclist to like relearning how to walk, it's not very, you're not very happy. No. <laughs> mm -hmm. So oh. yeah, but like my parents have, yeah, they, 
they, they took me back in <laughs> and I was able to like recover there. I like went to graduate school. I was like trying to reinvent my whole life and I was like, cycling is not an option anymore. So better go get that master's degree. Okay. I mean, you say that even so loosely, but like someone who's just suffered a TBI typically would not be like, I'm going to go get an advanced degree. I'm going to actually make my brain do even more work than I'm asking it to do right now. I mean, I definitely understand why that made sense to you, but surely even that just applying for grad school was really tough given the space that you were in. Yes. Taking the GREs, (laughs) given the state of my brain (laughs) was not great. Not my best scores. (laughs) You obviously did well enough that you not only got into grad school, but you graduated and and landed a pretty, um, you know, phenomenal job with the the degree that, I mean, it sounds like you landed exactly where you wanted to be in terms of epidemiology. Yeah. I mean, this was before uh, pursuing professional cycling. Like my dream was actually to be an epidemiologist at the CDC. So I was like, when the whole uh, crash occurred and everything, I was like, okay, well, let me get back to my first dream. <laughs> okay, I want to pause you there because that's not, you know, when you ask a little kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? I've never heard a little one say, I want to be an epidemiologist. <laughs> so where did that come from? Where did that pique your interest? Um, I, well, I wasn't, I guess I wasn't, I didn't know what an epidemiologist was when I was a little kid, but I found out in college, um, I went to Emory university for my undergrad and that's in, yeah, that's in Atlanta, which is where the CDC is located. And I, I was an anthropology student and I, they had like a degree I could do in global health. And then, you know, I got with through the whole CDC thing where I could go with that and had like a little internship at CDC. And I was like, this is it. This is where I belong. Amazing. <laughs> oh, and then, oh, what really sold me was that movie uh, Contagion. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, the, the movie. Um, they were filming that when I was an intern at CDC. Oh, and I wow. just, <laughs> yeah, I remember showing up one day and I, uh, there were being like all these protesters outside the CDC. Like it looked like all Helen broke loose. <laughs> I, turned, I assume. Yeah. I turned around. I was like, Oh my gosh, what's going on? But that was, uh, that they were filming a movie and yeah. And I was like, Ooh, this is cool. <laughs> oh, wow. I've never actually seen the movie, but I heard a lot of people referring to it when COVID was start, first starting because the whole social distancing thing, it sounds like, came up in the movie, and we all know how that has played out in real life. Oh, totally. I rewatched Contagion at the very beginning of the pandemic. For its, it was very relevant. It was, oh. yeah, the movie is just like everything that's happened to us, except like 10 million times worse. The disease is like 10 million times worse. So what is it that you love about epidemiology? Like what about your actual job before you just left it a couple months ago? Did you love the most? Like what about the way that it uses your brain and your talents? Do you love? Right. Well, actually I only left it. My last day was like two or was, I guess three weeks ago. Okay. This is recent then. Okay. Yeah. This is all very, yeah. Super recent. Um, me doing this full time, but I, I loved it because like, I love the numbers of everything. Like, I don't know, kind of like in cycling, I love the numbers. I love like looking at power files and just like analyzing data. Like being an epidemiologist, I was like a data analyst, but like the data I was like analyzing was like actually really relevant to people's lives. (laughs) 
or just like helping, you know, make society a better place to live. And then <laughs> or just like, behold, you get to live through a pandemic while working at the CDC. That had to have been in many ways like the realization of the potential of what that career means. I, yeah, I mean, I had only been working there for about six months when that occurred. And I remember, so I joined the task force, like basically the first week it started because I was like, this, this it's finally happening. It like took me back to, it took me back to college. And I was like thinking about the, Well, when I saw like them filming contagion, I was like, it's really happening. So like, I just remember like walking in the first, like the first day of the response and being like, yep, time to save the world <laughs> in like my business trousers and my glasses. So. Well, I mean, you truly felt like you'd found your place. I mean, it sounds like that wasn't terrifying for you. That was actually really satisfying that that's what your job meant. Yeah. I mean, I finally, I finally had the opportunity to do something like that. And I, yeah, those, those were crazy, crazy weeks when I was on the task force. I've never worked so much in my life. I can't imagine. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine like literally humanity is, is that's the stakes. It was insane. It was so insane. Like, and no one at that point, like no one even knew really what was going on. Like my first, the first week we were there, none of us were even wearing masks. So no one hadn't become a thing yet. It wasn't even a thing. Like no one knew what was going on. It, yeah. That makes so. me want to ask this question, which is, I mean, <laughs> that is literally the highest stakes poker that there is. You all are deciding what to do as far as regulations and lockdowns and restrictions, and it's it's something that we've never tackled before. And at times, I know bike racing is stressful. And the way that some of the gravel coverage has been as of late, I'm, I can only imagine has increased your stress. But at times, do you reflect back on those moments at the CDC and sort of say, you know, this, this bike racing business is not even remotely close to that kind of stress in some ways? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Perspective-wise, right? perspective yeah. Perspective-wise, I'm like, is this all about a water bottle? Huh? Uh the water bottle hurt all around the world right right, right. exactly exactly okay well thank you and we're not going to go into any of that type of stuff specifically but you are you are referring for our listeners to the gravel racing um, season of 2021 where you've had this incredible year of winning unbound in kansas and then you went on to win steamboat and then most recently last weekend, won Gravel Worlds, very decisively setting a brand new women's course record. I mean, you rode 150 miles, 151 miles in about seven and a half hours. Um, I was blown away <laughs> with the power that you posted, averaging <laughs> watts. Like, that's amazing. Um, and so does some of this, I mean, frankly, at those distances and those power numbers, that some of this ability and willingness to suffer, does this come from prevailing over that traumatic brain injury or has this always been Lauren? Um, I think in some ways, if you ask my friends, I've always like loved training the most. I just really love pushing myself. But like since the TBI and like, I guess one of my answers on the panel, I was saying like, it's given me a new level of like mental fortitude. I think that the way I internalize pain now is very different than it was before the TBI because like just 
being in that like really, really dark place and like any, everything else just seems so inconsequential. And maybe that's what's helping me deal with all the hate on the internet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Like after being in such a low spot, it's really hard to complain that much about anything. <laughs> and I'm sure, I mean, that's not to say I, I completely understand with what you're saying uh, in terms of the perspective. And that's also not to say that some of the things that you've recently been through are also really hard. So I certainly don't mean to downplay those with my question, but I suspected that the TVI had given you a perspective and specifically the recovery and relearning to rewalk and the pain I imagine that you were in and just like your body not cooperating with you. As you just said, you know, everything else seems inconsequential. Has that given you extra mental health boost? Are you able to now process some of these other stressors and real life things in a different way? Yeah. I mean, just having to take a step back in my life and be like, like realize like what's important, what's not important. And like, at the end of the day, I think what always, where my head always goes at the end of every single workout or any day, I'm like, just think you're not at like, you're not in a rehab center right now. This isn't, this isn't that bad. Like no matter how work gets, no matter like how the internet gets now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how any of this stuff gets, like you're not, you're not in a rehab center. You can walk, you can, you have, free, you can walk out the door. Like you can do whatever you want. And it puts it all in perspective because like I was, yeah, I was not allowed to leave a rehab center for two months. I was inside for two months. And I mean, looking back now, I mean, the rehab center was amazing for getting me back to where I was, but like at the time it was not, it was not a happy time. So yeah, comparing anything to that now, everything else just seems really like I'm able to handle everything much better. Um, and maybe got a couple more watts. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> a couple extra suffering watts that you didn't know you had in you. Yeah. Those are just suffering watts though. Yeah. That's just like, yeah. <laughs> those are just like being really like, yeah. The mental fortitude watts, <laughs> suffering watts. You know, I was just listening to a podcast over the weekend with Courtney DeWalter, who runs those crazy 200-mile races and stuff, and she was saying that at a certain distance, the the difference between, you know, um, sex or gender between men and women really starts to fade away because it starts to become far less about the, the physical prowess, and it becomes so much more of a mental game. Um, and I think you're proving that in Gravel, that at a certain distance, it really does become a mental game, and because of what you've been through it seems like you have some mental toughness that the rest of us may not have, or speaking for myself, at least that, that willingness to dig deep and suffer. I, I don't recommend having a traumatic brain injury though. No, 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 no. That's not, I'm not saying any listener should have anything remotely like that ever. Um, but yeah, no, I do feel like the, the difference between men and women definitely decreases as the distances do get longer. I mean, I saw it at SBT. I saw it at Unbounds. I was like catching guys who would drop me, yep. like yep. in the first hour of the race, and then we're at hour six or you know hour seven, hour eight, and just like slowly closing all the gaps because I think it does become more mental for sure at that point. Yeah, 
And so in those moments when you're out there on your own, is there a go-to place for Lauren? Um, you know, you talked a little bit about mantras at the Gravel Worlds panel, but, um, you know, what's, what's some of that inner dialogue that you have with yourself? How do you stay so focused and motivated in what seems like a really positive and constructive way? I haven't heard or seen anything that leads me to believe that you get really down on yourself when you're out there. No, like when I'm racing, I'm racing. I like go into a totally different place. I think some people call it a flow state. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that time just goes by faster. And like, even at gravel worlds, I was like, Oh, that was seven and a half hours. Whoa. I feel like I just started like five minutes ago. Wow. <laughs> I just get so into it. And I'm just like, so focused. And because I like, I do the work at home. Like I do so much like in the, I mean, we all do, like I do the training, I do all the things to like set this. I, and then I think of that, I'm like, you did like, you did the workouts, you did the nutrition, you did this, you did that. I often try to remind myself to eat. Okay, don't forget, <laughs> you're prone to forgetting that. Yeah. You know, you get so like engaged in what you're doing. You kind of forget to eat sometimes, yep. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But somehow you're able to stay, it seems like, engaged in that flow state the whole time. I mean, uh, if I had to guess, based on the numbers that you posted for Gravel Worlds, it's almost like you negative split the day where you started to come in stronger than you left. I'm just making an assumption there. But, I mean, you're ending on a high note is sort of my perception. So you're able to not only keep digging, but you come up with something extra there at the end. I mean... I just love the sport so much. I just love riding my bike that I'm like just out there, just like totally loving what I'm doing. And then just pushing myself. And I don't know, it's just something fun to do. <laughs> Ride my bike to Nebraska. That's amazing. <laughs> That's no, amazing. I just really enjoy riding my bike. Yeah. <laughs> And in the midst of this year, I mean, I feel like this has also sort of been glossed over. It's been mentioned. It was mentioned at Gravel Worlds, but you also got married in May. And that's not a small thing. And I've kind of watched how your summer (laughs) has unfolded with these triumphant highs and these incredible wins and podium finishes at some of the other races that we haven't even talked about where you've been top three. And, you know, you're navigating that in the context of this brand new marriage. Um, You know, what? What do you want to tell people about that? Or what do you, what do you think people don't know about that or aren't really fully recognizing about that situation? Right. I mean, I think the cycling news covered it when they said <laughs> I went unbound six days after my wedding. Your honeymoon. <laughs> my honeymoon was, was unbound. Uh, I mean, it's tough. All of it, all of it is tough. Like navigating a new marriage and navigating a new career as a cyclist. And my husband just started his residency in medicine in emergency medicine. So like, he's you know, strapped have, to the gills with stress then too. Yeah. We're yeah. all, yeah. And like, yes, yes. And they're, we're still in the middle of COVID. So right. yeah, it's very, I mean, we're all very stressed out right now. And that's a lot, Lauren, that's a lot. I just want to, acknowledge that like nothing else that you feel seen I mean you and I were talking at gravel worlds and I said oh is your new husband here and you said no he only gets I forget what you told me but a very limited amount of vacation which is to be expected in med school residency and so you're you're newly married but here you are on the road doing these bike races which is hard because now you you can't even be together and he's probably working his eyeballs out 
Yeah. Um, and that that's a lot to manage. And then as you've alluded to, there's been this internet uh, blowback from some of these races. And um, yeah, I just from the outside looking in, like that's a lot. And I'm just, I want to just say, I'm sorry on behalf of the sport that you're, that you're being treated so poorly online because no one deserves that. And we're all, we are all humans and we're all trying to get through our day, putting our pants on one at a time. (laughs) Exactly. I'm just trying trying to put my pants on. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, what, what would you want to just say in general? I mean, it doesn't have to be anything deep or, you know, mind blowing, but just, I I think, (laughs) you know, social media has made us people that we would never be if we were in person. Right. I mean, I've noticed that the things that are being said to me on the, I've, no one has been mean to my face, which is like mind blowing to me that this is all like, I think the internet gives people like love or just gives them a platform to say things they would never say to my face. And I like, I'm open to having these conversations with people, but this is not okay. Like just using me, um, just talking about me on the computer. It's feels a little bit like, uh, cyberbullying. And it's gotten worse. I feel like just with, with COVID and with social media and with everyone, um, just so strung out with, stress and anxiety and then we turn on each other which is heartbreaking it's heartbreaking to me to see that in the sport that I love as much as you love it and yeah, um, yeah. you yes, know I just want to oh sorry no, was, go ahead oh I was going to say that I guess the only thing I want to say about that is I just want to remind uh, everyone that I am also a human mm-hmm. and a also like I'm just put yourself like just Yep. Someone putting themselves in my shoes should realize this is like very hurtful and isn't good for anybody's mental health. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Totally. Um, I'm, and I'm glad you bring that up. And I do hope that we all remember that, not just in the context of this conversation, but just anytime we're online. I, I have a rule that if I can't add value or if I can't encourage someone, I don't comment at all and um I try to just make a point to leave a couple positive comments on a few things every day just because I know that people are having rough days and so many people are battling things that we know nothing about and mm-hmm. we're all trying to do our best and I know you're trying to do your exactly. best and it's hard it's really hard especially when um some of this stuff probably didn't even involve like specific decisions on your part but just things the way they came together out on the race course or whatever so um, I, well, on that note, and then we can kind of close out the gravel part, but um, is there something that you would want gravel promoters in general to know? Like as a woman who's at the top of the gravel sport right now, and there's kind of the same, I would say, like five to eight to 10 women who are really at the top of U.S. gravel racing right now. Like you don't have to answer for all of them, but just for yourself, <laughs> what, what do you want gravel promoters to know as they're navigating this? Right. I mean, I've been asked about like, do I want a separate start? Like, how do I want the races to look? But I feel like, I mean, I would love to have my own start. I would love, well, like, I would love to have my own start that isn't just like five minutes, like five minutes before and five minutes after like a male start because then it's mm-hmm. just as much chaos. Right. I mean, ideally, that'd be amazing if we could like start several hours away from all the men. I wouldn't yep. mind doing that. That'd be totally cool. And then that would like 
be way less ambiguity. It would make me feel much safer if I didn't have to start with thousands of people and just with, just with eight girls. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I just, from like a safety standpoint, I wouldn't mind doing that at all, but like, I understand it from like the challenges, like the, the logistical challenges for promoters like it would be very difficult to shut a town down for like two days as opposed to one day. And like, yep. like the time involved in doing that, I know it's much easier to just like have everyone start at the same time. So sure. I mean, I'm, I'm open to doing it either way. Um, whatever works for the race organizer. Um, but yeah, I think that, yeah, I'm totally open to that. But I also think that if we're going to say that this is the sport of no rules, but then, do this when someone breaks these unwritten rules, then we need rules. Yeah. <laughs> right. Reading between the lines isn't working. Reading between the lines is not a rule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And for the listeners who may not be familiar with gravel, the, the historical way these things have always been done, because it has been grassroots, underground, non-sanctioned, non-refereed racing, which is part of its beauty and magic is that everyone starts together. And then usually people just form, groups out on the roads and different pace lines take shape or I've historically done a lot of the riding by myself just because I've usually been on a single speed which has been really hard to then work with other riders trying to draft or anything like that but it's super common to be out there working with men and women both that you encounter on the race course at least that's been my experience and that is not against the rules in any way um and uh and then all of a sudden it has become a bigger issue as more and more talent and bigger names and teams have started showing up to these races kind of where those lines meet or where they're blurred and um unfortunately yeah it's resulted in a lot of this vitriol online which is totally uncalled for and um and you my friend have found yourself right at the heart of it haven't you Yep, this is yeah. <laughs> my first two weeks of pro cycling. <laughs> so, so yeah, on that topic, you were offered the opportunity by Cinch, I believe, to have your your CDC salary match so that you could focus um, exclusively on cycling. That was my understanding. And yes. was that a hard decision? Because I mean, this sounds like this was kind of your dream job at the CDC. It, it was, and it was a very, very, very tough decision. Like rolling into rolling into the town in Poria, Kansas at Unbound, I, I kind of knew I probably had some decisions coming up. Oh, <laughs> I was like, uh oh, uh oh, maybe I should have got maybe I shouldn't have done this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean it took me about a week to like realize that I had an opportunity and then I was presented the opportunity to do it. But like I don't know. I I did it because like, I can always, I justified it or like to myself in that I can always come back. Public health will always be there and cycling and being able to race and do this, how I'm doing it now is, I think I have a, everyone, all of us have shelf life. So (laughs) yeah. Good for you for seeing the opportunity. 
Yeah, I can go back. I can get back behind the computer whenever I want. I'll be able to do that for much longer than I'll be able to do this. That's 100% true. Yes. (laughs) Well, and so speaking of this amazing opportunity to have your salary matched, you shared this crazy story at Gravel Worlds on the panel when you said that you and Holly had gone down to the Olympic Training Center with (laughs) a talent ID camp. And for non-cycling listeners, USA Cycling or our cycling programs typically will try to snatch young talent and put them through a series of hill climbs and track racing. A series of of tests. A series of tests. (laughs) Do you have sort of the metrics are are like the underlying numbers there, watts per kilogram and those types of things. And you were outright told that you did not have a future in this sport, right? Essentially, yes. (laughs) Essentially. I did not, I guess I didn't pass all the tests. I had like the worst, I think I got up the hill the very slowest. Um, Amazing. And they, told, they told me to like lose weight. And then I think I crashed on the gravel descent. Was this the <laughs> mountain uh, hill climb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, said, so. Yeah, no thanks, huh? They're like, uh, try something else. Oh, this isn't really, this might not be the right thing for you. And at the time, uh, you were in love with cycling, so you wanted it to you wanted it to be a good fit, I assume. Of course. I was like, no, I'll show you guys. I'll show you guys. I got I can totally do this. I'll get totally faster at climbing up hills and uh maybe I will lose a couple of pounds. No, I didn't know I didn't actually that's not, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but no, I mean I, I was like, I can I can climb faster, I can be better than this. Like I had just started cycling um like the year before. And I was like, this is not an accurate reflection of my potential. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think there's a really good lesson there for people doing anything um, when we're super in love with this idea of this dream that we may have. And someone comes along and says, you'll never amount to much, whether it's starting a business or bike racing. And I think people really have a choice to go one of two ways. You can listen to that advice and say, well, okay. And sort of skulk away with your tail between your legs, or you actually used it as fuel to kind of power your, your, I mean, pursuit of excellence in the sport. So, I mean, talk me through that. Cause that's a very specific choice. Why didn't you take their advice and go find something else? Well, at least I was in love with the sport. It's, I, I thought I had, I was like, I'll show you guys, I can work really, really hard. I can work harder than anyone has ever worked before. (laughs) I'm going to turn this all around. I don't know. I guess my, my parents, since day one, basically my parents are always like, God, this Lauren, she's such an overachiever. Ah. And like, yeah. So I think the the loving the sport and being an overachiever (laughs) is, I, I just loved it. And I wanted to like somehow, and make it my life path. And I finally achieved that goal. It only took me 12 years, but. distance <laughs> pays off though. And it didn't come, it did not unfold in the way you would have expected. There was a huge thing in the middle where you said, I'm done with bikes forever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a brief intermission. It was like a pause, but then it was hard. I, I couldn't let go of the sport. It just has like this weird, I don't know, allure, this weird grasp on you. Um, yeah. I can totally relate. I can totally relate. And I, to me, when I finally had to put that dream down, it was like, it was like 
mourning the death of a dream no one had ever told me how painful that would be so I can totally relate to what you're saying yeah I, 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 yeah I I was having that experience and I just, I couldn't I couldn't handle it <laughs> so a little bit about you growing up because you just mentioned your parents on that Lauren and being an overachiever so where are you in the birth order of your family you know, I'm the firstborn. Okay. And how many <laughs> younger siblings do you have? I have two, um, two uh, brother brother. I have, I have three brothers. One is a half brother. He's okay. seven. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you grew up in Atlanta, is that right? No, I grew up. I was born in New York, in Staten Island, of all okay. places. I was born there uh, when I was seven years old. I moved to Colorado. Okay. And I grew up in Broomfield, Colorado. <laughs> okay. And that continues to be kind of home base, right? Yeah. That's where my family all lives. Okay. They all moved. They all uh, immigrated from New York to Broomfield, Colorado, which is really funny. That is like funny. my grand, <laughs> my grandpa's like this Brooklyn guy. That's like, uh, you know, one of those guys with like the glasses and like the velvet tracksuit, and he's like, <laughs> people say he's in the witness protection agency out in Broomfield. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's like you can tell in the last name, Di Crescenzo. Yeah. It's a very uh, Italian New York name. That is so funny. Okay. So when did you get into sports then? Were you into other stuff in like middle school, high school? Yeah, in high school, I was actually, like, on the cross-country and track team. So I was, like, don't know how I got – like, my family is a bunch of, like, non-athlete people. I don't know how I – I think just being in Colorado is what made me, like, initially turn me on to sports, like, endurance sports, just everyone around me doing it. I was like, that that looks fun. (laughs) So I started that way, and then, yeah, I was – I used to be a runner – and like every other person says, then I got hurt. And then, uh-huh. I, then I started riding my bike <laughs> and then I realized I could go way further and way faster on a bike. And then I just did that. <laughs> so that's like how it really started though. was like, yeah, I went from cross country to, to cross training to full-time cross training. To the bike. Yeah. Yeah. Full-time cross training was the bicycle. Gotcha. <laughs> You know, it's such a great story because, I mean, you were told that you you wouldn't make it, and here you are dominating this kind of baby sport, this relatively new sport called gravel. I mean, it's certainly new to the cycling scene compared to much older um, disciplines of road cycling and track cycling, and so it's figuring itself out as it goes. And, I mean, is there a part of you that's a little bit excited, albeit, you know, it would be nice if it wasn't happening with all the online vitriol, but but you're really at the heart of the, um, the figuring it out part. Like you're, you're at the forefront of helping shape gravel and where it goes from here. Is there some excitement to that or is that a role you did not ask for? (laughs) I mean, no, it's all very exciting. And I feel like with this new niche sport, we need, we need to be clear, like what the rules are going to be to avoid this, like all this online, like bullying. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I, I'm excited to be part of how this is shaped and formed. I mean, this it's not super new. My first gravel race was in 2015, but like, it's definitely much more popular than it was back then. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not totally new, but it's much more new than road. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, being part of the conversation about how, I feel like the conversation is mostly centered about how females are interacting with males. Yep. Even though we're starting with thousands of males. Yep. It's, yeah. And like you said, like, we're we're all drafting off of each other. We're just, mm-hmm. we start with a thousand people and we're going to have some cross gender things going on. Like we're in all mixed groups. Yep. So I think that they're just, yeah, I, I'm excited about being part of the conversation with where this is going because I feel like I need to be in these conversations. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I can understand the the separate fields starting the women, even just 30 or 40 minutes ahead of the men. Um, yes, that would be much better than five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, even if it eventually, if there becomes some commingling between the two fields, then at that point of the race, I think probably everyone would be okay with it because the women would have done the bulk of the day themselves. And, you know, theoretically, like if a guy's going to catch up after a 30 minute break of you all racing full gas, that's going to take a lot of time for someone to bridge that big of a gap. And, and, you know, at that right. point, maybe it's okay then to have the men and women working together late in the race when that big of a gap um, existed. And, you know, part of why I love gravel too is that I did my share of road racing where it was a women's only cat one, two field. And so I always knew the same women I was racing against and lining up against every single mm-hmm. time. And part of what I've loved about gravel is getting thrown in there with men who have maybe never pinned down a number before in any road race whatsoever, but they're showing up for gravel and they're strong enough to ride with, but they're, I mean, I would have never encountered them obviously in a road race. Cause I would have only been racing with my women competitors. So there's definitely some upsides to getting to ride out there with them. Um, I'm having fun riding with everyone. I think it's just fun, but exactly. Yeah. I mean, I could, yeah, like you, I come from a road background where it's like the same, the same girls every yeah. single weekend. Yeah. Which, so that can be a thing too, where it's just the same kind of 20 women and then you start to get into classifications. And what about the person who's been, you know, closet training on their Peloton or on their Zwift and they've never <laughs> had their bike outside, but suddenly they show up and they can totally hang with a elite group of riders. You know, you don't get those experiences when you then categorize people and say, well, you can only race in the pro field if you've done X, Y, Z as a qualifier or something like that. So there's there's a lot to maneuver there, but I agree with you that it does seem like the bulk of the conflicts coming from the male-female um, mix out on course. And and I know that the gravel promoters are are really all kind of scratching their heads too about what to do about it. So I think this is a hard growing pain. And unfortunately, you've been in the middle of it this summer. Um, quite the summer. Have, quite the summer, yes, yes. Quite the um, summer. <laughs> what, what happened at, uh, was it BWR? You had, you like got really badly dehydrated or something, if I remember. Severely, yeah. Okay. So what was yeah. that? Like you were just so focused that you forgot to take care of yourself? No, the issue for me at BWR, um, no, oh, no, at Crusher, sorry. Crusher, Crusher yeah. Okay. Yeah, Crusher. Yeah, I got so like, I got so severely focused is I ended up drinking one bottle and having one bar over the course of five and a half hours because I got oh, a little wow. bit too, yeah, I got a little bit too focused okay. on, uh, on like on just racing and I was like, you know, I felt like I was in a road race. So I was like, all right, back at it, <laughs> doing my road race thing. But like, that was just like a mistake for me to, I don't know. I I'm convinced I had some sort of virus or something. Like I, I was not my normal self that day. And I was like not eating and not drinking. Gotcha. 
Yeah, so that was more of like, yeah, more of that than anything. <laughs> and I, yeah, ended up at the medical tent. I got third place that day, but I had to go straight to the medical tent <laughs> to get, yeah, my oxygen like went down to like 86. Oh, wow. Your O2 sat? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I was not taking care of myself that day. So, so yeah, you've really kind of, okay. So there's a fine line I'm hearing between Lauren's (laughs) capability of pushing herself harder than many of us can, which results in success. But then that, that line can tip not in your favor. If you're not careful, it sounds like you have to really stay vigilant on when you're too focused that you're not taking care of yourself. Oh, totally. Yeah. So I guess in response to that other question earlier about what am I thinking about during Mm -hmm. a race, it's when am I eating my next bar? (laughs) When am I eating my next thing? When am I drinking? When am I, I'm mostly just drinking and thinking about eating and drinking. (laughs) Well, it sounds like because if you don't, if you take your eye off the ball then things go sideways. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And after that experience at Crusher this year, I'm like thinking about it even more. Never like just like chilling out or anything yeah. like it yeah i'm more like okay when do i eat when do i drink when do i eat when do i drink because that experience was so bad <laughs> do you set a sort of a timer or do you have something on your top tube or something as a reminder to do it at a regular interval no i mean i try to do it like at least i try to eat at least one like bar or goo or whatever like an hour every single hour um have one try to do one bottle an hour okay and, like yeah. So, you know, every time I pass the hour mark, I'm like, okay, time. Like if I hadn't finished, yeah, if I hadn't finished it, I just like stuff it down my mouth and I'm like, okay, okay. But like, I usually try to, in these gravel races, I try to eat when like, it's not as technical of a section mm-hmm. when it's like just a road section when mm-hmm. we're just like, yeah. When I have a moment to like take my hands off the bars, eat some food. So like it happens more in line with the course but that makes total sense. Cause there are definitely times it's not safe to be trying to do that. There's definitely yeah. times it's not safe to be eating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you love this sport of cycling. I mean, I can hear it. I can see it. I've watched your career kind of on and off. Um, and at the same time, it's breaking your heart right now, I imagine just based on how it's going. And so how do you, how do you love a thing that's not loving you back in some ways? I mean, you're enjoying incredible success and everyone is just thrilled for your results. And at the same time, you're dealing with this online dynamic. Um, You know, what's getting you through right now? What's keeping this positive and keeping this fun for you? Are you just staying focused on what's next? Yeah. Right now, I went on a group ride last night just to go hang out with the people that aren't being mean on the internet that actually are really nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I hung out with my friends last night on the group ride and they were all very nice. And just like, everyone was like giving me hugs and stuff. Cool. So yeah. more of that then. Yeah. I'm going on, going on another group ride tomorrow. It's like seeing people and, you know, in real life. In real life, IRL, as the kids say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Seeing people IRL has yeah. been very helpful. Seeing other like, cyclists that I've known for years is IRL. I I felt that love being radiated towards you at gravel worlds too. I did not perceive a, um, (laughs) I didn't perceive a negative vibe um, coming at you, but of course I'm not on the course with you. I don't know if you did or not, but it just seemed like you were, 
you were treated kindly by the people that were there in real life, as you said. IRL, exactly. <laughs> IRL is much different than not IRL. Totally. You kind of cut yourself off the internet, right? Like, just don't read the comments, which I think is always I, Yeah, I, I turned my phone on do not disturb mode. And then I just continued living my life. And I told myself that the internet is like the fifth dimension. It's something to be disregarded. Yeah. Like something that's not real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not. Cause again, people wouldn't say a lot of those things in real life as they would online. No, no one has said a single mean thing to me in real life. Which like blows, it blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Real life is much different than internet life. So well, it's like, yeah, yeah. it's kind of mind blowing. So that just kind of involves some self-control and self-restraint on your part then to kind of stay out of the, out of the swirl on the internet. Um, which I'm, I'm just sure trying to, yeah. No, I mean like, I'm not getting, I'm not going to get into any fights on the internet or anything. Cause like, I'm, I know better than that. Yeah. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm keeping, yeah, just sticking to like what happens trying to take the high road on all of this. I'm not calling anyone out and I'm just living my own life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's smart and some solutions will come out of all of this. And hopefully that will help everyone enjoy the sport of gravel racing again. um, Without confusion. Yes. Yes. Please. Let's just all enjoy this sport again. Yeah. It is supposed to be fun after all. Yeah, I, I had, I'm having fun. I don't know. Yep. <laughs> I'm also not reading the internet. So, smart, smart, smart. <laughs> so what's next for you? Are you kind of winding your 2021 down or do you, I mean, maybe you don't want to share where you're headed next. If you don't, that's totally fine. Do you have anything oh, no, on I mean, the horizon? Uh, horizon, horizon. I, oh, so I, I'm coming back to Colorado for, um, well, first I'm going to go to the Craig hospital, like Grand Fondo, cool. uh, yeah, so that'll be fine just to kind of be totally like non bike racing mode. I'm gonna go do a grand fondo. And then <laughs> I'm gonna go um, I'm gonna do the the rad in Trinidad. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's like Looks the like beginning of October. Yep. Yeah, I yeah, had the roadstone there were really nice. And yeah, I did the the Pony Express out there earlier this year and it was like amazing. Cool. Yeah. And then maybe Big Sugar. I okay. think Big Sugar in Arkansas. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's the rest of the season, but I don't know. I'm just trying to make it at this point. I'm just trying to make it through the day. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> I get that. And um, we didn't touch on this, but you mentioned it on the panel at Gravel Worlds. You volunteer with Craig Hospital now because it's really important to you to kind of give back to people who are going through what you went through. Um, mm-hmm. What does that look like? What do you do when you go down there? Well, I so what I've been doing, I... I guess I raised money. I, I did raise money for them through the Everesting thing, which nice. was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did, I mean, by like either raising money and like doing these rides, riding with people mostly, um, like in the like people who come out to do like the shorter distances, just like, you know, talking to them. And, you know, I gave like a little, a little speech before. I was like, this is how far I've come and like, like I, I try to talk to as many people going through it as possible, like giving them some hope that this isn't it. And it has to be really impactful on those patients. Would that have been impactful on you when you were in their shoes? 
Yes, actually, yes. Um, I, I bet so. Yeah, I mean, the most impactful person I probably talked to um, during my TBI was Tim Dugan. Who oh, yeah. Also, yeah, yeah, he he reached out to me and he like took me on some rides and stuff and was like, telling me about his own experience and like just knowing that that another person has been through like what you're going through but they somehow like made it out okay and went to the olympics that really yeah. helped me yeah because <laughs> yeah, when you're yeah. in it you don't know where the end is that's almost the worst part isn't it is that you can't see the end you can't see the light yeah i i didn't know where my life was heading or mm. what the future would look like and then just seeing someone on the other side of it actually really helped me so I was I was trying to talk to people and raise money and awareness for Craig like we did a project super training raising money for Craig oh cool yeah because it's like it's a non-profit hospital like yeah so they rely on donations yep yes it's entirely donations based <laughs> tell me where people can find out more about the Craig Hospital Grand Fondo is that on the Craig website yeah, it, okay. it should be. Yeah, it's okay. uh, it's called Pedal for Possible, and it's uh, it's in Louisville, um, in Colorado. Okay, cool. It started. It, it starts at Prolozumi headquarters. Okay. <laughs> and I'll definitely put a link to that. It's on when? Oh, nice. September eighteenth. Okay. And Lauren, if people wanna, I will definitely include your um, Instagram handle. But I, do you have a website or a blog? Or if people wanna follow along with you, is there anything in addition to Instagram to keep up with you? <laughs> well, I used to say on all the, I used to say all the <laughs> different podcasts, be like PubMed, find me on PubMed.com <laughs> for like my scientific papers, but no, not okay. there anymore. <laughs> no, not there anymore though. Okay. <laughs> I think, no, I, I think, uh, Instagram, uh, Strava, okay. probably, I probably should, uh, that's probably good. Okay. Uh, Instagram Strava is good. Okay, great. That's basically where I spend most of my time. <laughs> like on the internet. <laughs> so, and you don't have to answer this question fully, fully, but in sort of a maximum enthusiasm theme, um, Ooh, inspirational way, like what is your secret sauce for training? You said you do the work. You don't have to reveal any of your like specific plans. <laughs> what is the thing that Lauren does specifically those days when you don't feel like throwing a leg over the top tube? Um, when you just don't feel like doing the work, but you know, you need to go do the work. I mean, what's the, yeah. What's the special sauce? I mean, days like that. And like, if I don't go ride, I haven't missed a single workout since like being on this team. Wow. I just like, yeah. Since I've had a coach, like anytime I've had a coach, I've like never missed a workout. Um, unless there's like some crazy, crazy events that make it impossible. But <laughs> I just remind myself, like, this is going to pay, like, you're going to be sorry for this later, Lauren. Like this is going to pay, this will pay dividends later, but you'll also pay the price if you don't do this. And I don't know. I just, I, I'm never in the situation really where I'm like, I don't feel like it. I'm like, okay, uh, this is what I need to do today. I like put it on my, I put it on my calendar. I have like a little nice to-do list uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's nice to check that off every day. Just so I like, okay, I did this and now I can carry on with my day. Awesome. Yeah. Are you an it's like, I like kind of girl? Like, does that really fill you up? Like executing on the plan or on the mission? <laughs> yeah. I love, <laughs> yes. I'm slightly addicted to to-do lists. I like it. 
I think that's great advice. Like sometimes it's just literally do the work, right? Like don't question it. Don't perseverate. Don't debate. Don't negotiate with yourself. Like just go out and do the work. Right. And like, this is, and especially now I'm like, this is my job, but I mean, I've always, it's not like I was missing workouts before either. So like, I I just put it on the to-do list and like check Mark. (laughs) That's a rare discipline to be honest. And I think it does show your true love for the sport. And, um, I think that's pretty awesome. And in many ways just makes it easier for you to keep doing really well when it's that easy for you to follow the plan. Yeah, I just got to follow the plan and check off the boxes. (laughs) Well, you're doing awesome, my friend. I am so thrilled for you in the season you've had. Thank you so much for sharing just a glimmer of your story with us. Uh, I look forward to following you for the rest of the fall and seeing how this uh, last couple races go for you. And we'll have links to the Grand Fondo and some of these other things you've mentioned on the podcast. And um, just want to encourage you to keep, keep that chin up. Uh, this will all settle. The dust will all settle. And at some point we will have resolution of the uncertainties and gravel. And this will be fun again. And um, in the meantime, just thanks for being such an inspiration. Thank you so much for letting me tell my, my little story. Absolutely. <laughs> my tale. Absolutely. I look forward to watching it continue to unfold. So thanks for me too. <laughs> Let's see, where this, yes. let's see where this goes next. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, have a great weekend out there, Lauren. I'm glad you're surrounded by people who can boost you and lift you up. I think that's really important. And we'll see you back in Colorado at some point. I'll be back soon. Thank you for listening to Maximum Enthusiasm with Megan Hopman. Subscribe, check out our blog, and learn more at MaximumEnthusiasm.com.